Hi, I'm Gaynor Wheatley, and you're listening to He's the Voice podcast. Hi, this is Glenn A. Baker. I'm talking about Whispering Jack and John Farnham, and I'm talking with Adam and Nigel. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And the winner is. And Mr. John Farnham. John Farnham. John Farnham. John Farnham. John Farnham. Sir John Farnham for Whispering Jack. But I, most of all, would like to thank my manager and very close friend, Glenn Wheatley. He put his money where my mouth is, and I thank him very much for that. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you very much indeed. Greetings, Farnham fans. You're listening to He's the Voice, the one and only podcast devoted to the remarkable career achievements of Australian national treasure, John Farnham. My name's Adam Stolfo, and I'm joined here by my partner in crime, who I think is the only man that I know qualified enough to take the mantle of co-host, Mr. Nigel Langis. How's it going, mate? G'day, mate. How are you? Really, really good. How you doing? All right? I'm doing good. And, uh, awesome, mate. Awesome. Good to be back. Absolutely, mate. Episode two. So we got past number one, which is always a good sign for a new show. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, mate, we're here to talk about uh, John Farnham's Whispering <laughs> Jack album. Certainly a, a very important album in the significance of Australian music history, but also for ourselves as well. Yeah. So um, Whispering Jack, I mean, God, where do you start, mate? Uh, 24 times platinum, the highest selling album by an Australian artist in this country. Yeah. Four hit singles. Certainly an amazing achievement from John Farnham, this album. Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, um, the history books will show that uh, long after John Farnham, this is certainly the one album that he will be remembered for ongoing. Um, This is certainly going to be the mark of the man. Absolutely, mate. Like, I mean, I think that if you're going to pick out an album from John's body of work, I think that Whispering Jack essentially stands on its own, doesn't it? So, you know, we're we're looking forward to getting into it into some detail. Yeah, I've got some interesting uh, details about it. I've done a bit of research and been in touch with a few different people and collated the information. Uh, As you would be aware, uh, you know that Whispering Jack is John's 12th studio album. It was recorded between April and June in 1986. Um, It was released on the 20th of October, 1986. And for anyone who's got a copy of the album, um, they'll be able to see that Ross Fraser was the producer. And an interesting note that Ross actually worked previously around uh, the Wheatley organisation and actually has an acknowledgement on two LRB albums, the Playing to Win album and the No Rains album. You know, I didn't actually know that. I thought that Ross Fraser and John Farnham's first collaboration was Whispering Jack. So check them out. Check them out. Yeah. Um, We know that the album peaked at number one on the Australian music charts. I just want to take a moment just to uh, do a shout out to Mr. David Kent. Um, Mm -hmm. He's uh, the gentleman who was responsible for the Kent Music Report, which ran from 1974 to 1999. And um, I contacted David and he was very gracious in providing me information, but then also verifying other information that I had. So a shout out to him and a thank you for his contribution. He's uh, the man. Yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah. It would be remiss of us to talk about the album uh, Whispering Jack without bringing up a very important family in the Farnham story here. Um, That being Glenn and Gaynor Wheatley. Yeah. um, We simply wouldn't have 
this album without the amazing contribution from this family. Unfortunately, we lost uh, Glenn at the start of uh, 2022, obviously a very sad time and a very challenging year. And um, Glenn's obviously spoken in great detail about this album and the significance of it. So uh, we've got a couple of clips here to include from some of his interviews in the past. Yeah, that's right. I've taken a couple of clips from a fantastic interview that he did with Brian Nankervis. So um, let's have a listen now to uh, what Glenn Wheatley was saying about Whispering Jack. I'd always promised him we're going to do an album together. So again, I couldn't get him a deal. Um, it was very difficult to get anyone a deal in those days. It took me 18 months to get Whispering Jack together, but thank goodness I did. Um, I ended up putting everything on the line because no one else was going to pay for it. But it was an extraordinary um, piece and still stacks up today. I mean, you know, at 1.7 million albums of Whispering Jack's been sold in this country. And once the album got to number one, Whispering Jack stayed at number one for 26 weeks. Six months. Every week. I mean, I was getting people like Dennis Hanlon at Sony. He said, mate, I got the Michael Jackson album. He said, just, just let me have one week. You know, I said, well, it's not me after me, mate. Everyone's still buying it. Week after week after week, we kept it at number one. So that was Glenn Wheatley sharing his thoughts when asked about Whispering Jack. Out of interest, talking about those charts, Whispering Jack entered the charts at number 27 on its day of release, being the 20th of October, 1986. And it took four weeks, moving from the 27th spot to number five, and then spent two weeks at number two before becoming the number one album on the 17th of November, 1986. Over the next 31 weeks, Whispering Jack sat at number one for a total of 25 weeks dipping to the number two spot five times and to number four once over that 31-week period. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And Whispering Jack stayed in the top 10 until the 11th of October 1987, just two weeks short of a full year. Oh, yeah. It's actually mind-boggling when you actually hear, hear them it, read out like spe- that. You know? especially, <laughs> like... especially when you take into account um, how music is consumed in such a quick turnaround these days. So it had that incredible run in the top 10, but then it went on to record its final week at the top 20 almost six months later on the 4th of April 1988, just one day shy of 76 weeks where it sat in the top 20 charts of Australian music. Whispering Jack remained in the Australian top 100 for 127 weeks. Oh, remarkable. Which is massive. Absolutely remarkable. Anyway. Yeah, we were very, very fortunate to have the, uh, the backing of Gaynor for this particular podcast project. She was really, really generous with her time in regards to uh, giving us some of her own personal insights. Also to give us that firsthand experience of what exactly it was like uh, to be a part of such a remarkable album. Yeah, that's right, Adam. So um, why don't we just tune into um, our interview with Gaynor and listen to what she has to say about Whispering Jack and the conversations that we had with her. Good morning, Gaynor. How are you? Good morning. I am well. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic to meet you. <laughs> yes, and you. First of all, thank you very much for your time today. We are extremely grateful for your time with us um, doing an interview for our podcast. 
It's a privilege, actually. Um, I know it would normally be Glenn that should be sitting here doing that, but I've managed to um, fill his seat wherever I can, yeah. and at least I've been part of it, so some of it could be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's okay. We're, we're okay with some of it being true. It's, uh, um, we're just focusing on having a really good conversation. Okay. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Let's move to Whispering Jack just quickly here, uh, Gaynor. So can you remember how Whispering Jack evolved to progress and shape into the album that we obviously have come to know? That's a very big question. Um, <laughs> well, I think the seeds would have been sown with Uncovered. I think that was yeah. the promise that Glenn made to him that he would have an album at some point. Then the opportunity with Little River Band presented itself and John jumped at it. And I understand why. And he got to tour America extensively and play to huge audiences. And he was actually where he should be on big stages with incredible production, singing fabulous songs. So that, um, that, that, that was really fantastic for him until it wasn't, until he felt, you know, that he still needed to sing his songs his way. Then came all right, what are we going to do now after he stormed out of a Little River Band? It was a fabulous performance. Um, and it was like, okay, now what do we do? Now we've got to do the album. Now we've you're, you're ready. And he felt ready. So I know Glenn approached many different um, producers because John had had some experience in um, America. He thought the David Fosters, Quincy Jones, they'd all know who he was and would jump at the chance. They did not. Um, and in the meantime, Ross Fraser, who was, I think, on our cruise, he was going, pick me, pick me, pick me. And eventually Glenn did. And, um, you know, the rest is sort of history. So out they went to John's place in Doncaster, set up a studio, and yeah. off they went. Off and they it, went. It sounds like a glamorous kind of process, but it wasn't. It was hard. Everyone was nervous. Um, there was a little bit of desperation in there too. Mm. And, uh, and John, I think he listened to absolutely every song, every demo, because he didn't want to miss one. And I, I think they believed that they had a... a good album but they didn't have the fairy dust and um the fairy dust presented itself in the form of you're the voice and can you recall uh, what were some of the practical challenges the team sort of faced while making the album and when promoting whispering jack <laughs> um there were many challenges uh, none being keeping john focused or or the voice focused in delivering but i know glenn had challenges um, because it was John Farnham in actually getting radio to play it. I know they sent it out in a you know brown paper bag or a white package to radio and no one would play it and no one took it seriously until Cherie Romaro, she actually played it and then basically marched up the hall and put it on the turntable and it got its first spin. But, um, yeah, she engaged with it, whereas not many people would. I know Charlie Fox at Triple M just said absolutely no way. And that's an interesting story because Glenn was in the process of buying Triple M. <laughs> and uh, as Charlie would recount it, that's a hell of a way to get Johnny Farnham played on Triple M, was to buy the radio station. But it was part of another thing that Glenn was doing. So it wasn't easy for what should have 
been. We still really had to sell the album and sell the songs and sell the performances. And that sort of then came with, okay, well, now we have to tour it. And, of course, there weren't any real venues. There were really shitty venues that he, you know, started out in um, until it resonated with everybody. The people uh, started hearing it, the, the, the song, and it was basically the public calling the radio stations and asking them to play it, that they actually had to succumb and put Johnny on the radio. Which is, it can just, that doesn't happen anymore, which is so sad. But that it was that people engaged, the people yeah. spoke. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Gaynor, I've had to give some thought as to how I would pose this next question. Um, I've always found it slightly irritating when people raise the, the statement of, Glenn needing to mortgage the house in order to come up with the finances to pay for Whispering Jack. <laughs> yes. I think, if anything, it's the best example of uh, how the support you provided, Glenn, in turn was able to support the project being the album Whispering Jack. And anyone who thinks about it for a minute would know there's no way Glenn would have made that decision simply by himself. So I'm interested to hear from you if you can recount anything about how did Glenn actually approach that topic of conversation with you? <laughs> I think there must have been alcohol involved. But, uh, <laughs> uh, look, I think John actually says it better. He says that Glenn put his money where my mouth was. Mm. I think that's a much, I don't know, better way of saying, you know, mortgage the house. Yeah. You know, John was part of quite a few projects that Glenn had on at the time. Mm -hmm. We had to deliver that. We had real life in studios in Germany and we needed to raise a lot of money. So I don't think it was, it wasn't scary so much in those days just getting a mortgage. There was money to be had. It's just that we were in the music business well, banks didn't find that as a very, you know, secure business. Um, so, you know, goods and chattels had to sort of be offered up. So, I, I mean, I wasn't nervous that, you know, like now, God, we've got mortgages on mortgages with mortgages. But <clears throat> um, it was just basically putting the house up as collateral. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but cheapest do that for Whispering Jack, wouldn't you? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Ten times <laughs> In a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. Yes. absolutely. Yes. And Gaynor, what do you think it is about Whispering Jack that captured the imagination of the general public and has ingrained itself into Australian culture? You know, when, I, when you reflect on the lyrics, I think we as Australians all want to be worthy of those lyrics. We want to be those lyrics. I, I think we see ourselves, we want to be who John's singing about. It's a song when you sing, you want to be worthy of singing that song yeah i'd like people to think that's who we are on the world stage there we go so let's uh, move on now we also had our opportunity to talk to ross fraser the producer of the album yep. and it was good being able to talk to ross we really were able to get in and pick his brain and um well a lot of people have no idea what producers do on an album as well so it was really good to get a chance to speak to him about well, that. I, I certainly didn't either so it was uh it was interesting talking to him and learning a bit more about actually what that's involved so um let's pick up with our uh, discussion with ross fraser can you hear me okay i can yes 
Um, yep. No worries. So thank you very much for your time. Greatly appreciate your time today. Yeah, um, nice to meet you, Ross. You too. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a long time ago, guys, and I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> it's I'm not going to remember everything, I can tell you that. Yeah, no, that's quite fine. So this a guy called Tom Keogh, who was a road manager in America for LRB, and he worked for Glenn, and I was working in the office as well, doing some other things, and Tom said to me, do you want to go to America and work for three months with LRB? And I went, shit, this is interesting. I didn't expect this. Um, so went out on tour and it was amazing. I, I learned so much. You know, I was just helping on stage and kind of being a little bit of a stage manager, uh, looking after guitars and drums and everything. And it was just an amazing time. So when I came back from America, when John decided to leave LRB, Glenn was looking for, as, a, as John, to do another solo album. He was trying to get some big producers from America and he, he wasn't having much luck. And mm -hmm. uh, that's when I said, oh, maybe I should just go out and you know, hang out with John for a while. And he said, yeah, sure. You know, At that time, he couldn't get another producer to work on that album. Mm. So um, he gave me free reign in some states. You know, I think he just didn't realise how it was going to work. Yeah. John rang me up and he said, um, can you come to my place? I've got all these hundreds of cassettes in here and I, don't, I want someone else to help me go through the songs. So that's when I went to his, his house and we spent a day doing some songs and there was nothing really great in there. There was one song that he'd part um, wrote in America when he was doing solo stuff over there, doing all the movie stuff that he was doing. Yep. And uh, that, that's not banjo. You know, that's pretty good. Well, let's look at that. So, John said, look, I've got a garage. Why don't we work in the garage? So, I'd go down to the garage and we have more tapes and everything. In the meantime, I was reaching out to try and find some songs for him. Mm -hmm. And that is what you see on Whispering Jack. Most of those songs are songs that I found. And out of John playing a lot of tracks, a lot of songs he was looking at. And, you know, there's one song there that, that's, that's pretty good. So, we, we ended up with nine tracks and I thought we were pretty much ready then to make the record and Glenn was in London and I rang him. I said, Glenn, it's Ross. He said, yeah, what? I said, uh, we're going to start the album and he absolutely blew his head. He said, what the f*** are you doing? You know? I said, no, no, I think we're there, Glenn. Clear then. He said, well, I'm coming back soon. I'll come down. So um, that's when it started. We moved from the uh, garage to the studio. In, in the meantime, when we were in the garage, we were talking about a lot of stuff and we talked about the band because uh, the Farnham band was pre Whispering uh, Jack and it was after John had come home and he put the, the Australian band together again and did a little tour and it went off. Like you could not move anywhere. It just went off. And this was probably 85. Yeah, oh, right. So we were talking in the, in the garage about the band and I said, look, maybe we should kind of get a younger band, John. I know the, you know the band you've been using, they're great players, no, don't get me wrong, but let's get a little bit of, you know, some something, people are younger, like Red Garcet, you know, and John was like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. And I said, well, why don't we get Hershey in to help us start this up, you know? So Hershey came back in his VW van and got his spare light out and we started making some noises, you know? That, that's where we went. And then we, that's when we thought we'd, 
could do something. So that's when we went to the studio. So that's about as far as I can get you at the moment. Mm. Yeah, wow. Nicely said, Ross. So, Ross, for us, but then also for the listeners as well, um, Mm. can you please give us some insight as to describe the role of a record producer? Okay, well, we can go back to those early years where I was doing engineering and working on different bands Uh and had that interest in maybe saying, well, you know, I think I'll go to the rehearsals because I think I can help make the band better. Now, that's production right there. That's a producer doing that, right? That's what he should be doing. Yeah. That's where I got the idea of production, right? Yeah, yeah. If we talk about Whispering Jack mm-hmm. and the role of producer that Glenn gave me, in those days, in, in the 80s or probably in the 70s as well, a producer's job was mainly to sit on the couch and make sure the band is doing the right thing or the artist is doing it right. Mm-hmm. So he's there to say, no, maybe you could do that better, you know? Now, that's a lot of what I did with John. Even the vocals, I'd say, no, nah, you can do better than that or, you know, you're going too hard. I mean, that's what a producer does. He looks at everything and, you know, that's what I think a music producer is. Yeah. Sounds um, pretty cool sitting there on the couch and just telling yeah. everyone what to do. Oh, yeah, you stand up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that having that sound engineering experience is an asset. To... Oh, it, it is, and, it, and, and it's funny because Doug Brady, who I got to do the engineering of the album, it's pretty young, Doug, he was 24 or something, yep. uh, and he was an engineer. Um, so we kind of worked together in that aspect as well, Yeah, like in engineering. I'd do some bit of, t- bit of tweaking on the desk, um, Doug had told me to pull off. And that's, you know, that's how that happened as well. Yeah. Um, Adam and I were having a discussion a bit earlier. It's an assumption on our part, but the thing that um, a few of you actually filled like dual roles in the fact that you came from sound engineering background to be the record producer, but effectively mm. Whispering Jack then had the knowledge of two um, sound engineers working on the album. And some people say that for David Hirschfelder's contributions to the album, in some ways he deserves a producing credit to some degree on the album as well. I don't know if that is an accurate uh, representation of David's role, but um, then the potential thing of, you know, that with Whispering Jack, there were minds coming together that were able to share a focus and share, you know, in regards to those roles. Oh, look, I definitely agree that there were minds coming together. Yes, there were. Yep. Uh, As for giving Hershey a producer credit, I didn't see that. And it's really difficult to see that without being there. Yep. You know? Because I can tell you this, once we finished with Hershey and his Fairlight and his Yamaha gear, he left the studio and said to me on the way out, don't put any guitar on this. Of course, the next day I started putting guitar on. <laughs> um, I brought Fred in and we, he did some great stuff on your voice and many songs. And so it's hard to give Hershey's role a title, mm-hmm. whether he's music director is he? Yeah. Um, but basically, I had the demos of the songs that we got. Yeah. I'd say, uh, Hershey, let's work on this. I mean, they weren't great productions, but they were good songs. 
Mm-hmm. So we had them into great production. So that's where Hirsch and I worked really well together. Yep. Um, but as I said, once he'd finished that role, um, the roles changed. Then I got to the point where I had to do the vocals with John. So that took a long time and it took a lot of work to get that right. So Hershey wasn't made in the album all the way through, right? All right, yep. yep. About a third of what we did, Hershey and I worked together, and John worked with Hershey as well. Even Doug had stick his hand up every now and then as well. So there was a bunch of us there. And, you know, John's role was the artist's role, and, you know, he wanted to just make a great record. So, hey, Adam, there we are. That was uh, talking to Ross Fraser, and it was really interesting to talk to. I learned some very interesting things from him uh, that I wasn't aware of. Least of all, one of them being, I didn't realise that the Fairlight actually belonged to David Hirschfelder. I thought it was actually the fact that uh, the Fairlight was uh, studio-owned so that people coming into the studio could use it. Yeah, that was a real insight. And um, it's interesting that that's actually brought up as well because when we had the opportunity to do, oh, God, no, seriously, one of my favourite interviews that we did, David himself, David Hirschfelder, the man, the living legend. uh, It was a great day that day. the, The genius that he is. Yeah, he actually spoke about uh, the fact that the Fairlight was actually his. Because I was in Little River Band and it, it felt to me like I'd just won Tats Lotto, um, I lashed out and spent $35,000 in 1984 on a Fairlight music computer. I mean, $35,000 is a lot of money at any time for a musical instrument, let alone back in... We're talking 30 years ago. That was mm. astronomical. It was like spending 100 grand on, on something. It was pretty nuts. Yeah. But anyway, I have a supportive partner and she said, go for it. You know, it doesn't matter that we've saved up for a house. This is a great opportunity. You know, she she's supported me on that. So um, I was still paying it off the monthly lease payments. And, uh, and when John and Ross called me up and said... Uh, Hey mate, would you play on that? We're we're doing a, a solo album. Um, Little River Band was sort of on a hiatus, which we all sort of understood this was it. It was over, really. And so I thought, well, I'm twiddling my thumbs. I've got this Fairlight burning a hole in my pocket. Sure, let's go. And I'm um, plus, I really like John. I mean, we were sort of like not the outliers, but but maybe we were on the fringe of the band because John was the new singer and unfairly gave himself a hard time for the band not going to the next level. I mean, it wasn't his fault. He's one of the best singers in the world. But I think a lot of the audience in America especially really missed Glenn Shorick. And me, being the keyboard player, I was the new chum as well. So we sort of gravitated towards each other at the time. And I felt a kindred spirit with him. And I liked a lot of the music he liked and likewise. So it was a good creative match. So, yeah, I just literally filled up my combi van full of gear and drove to his rented house in Bulleen and with no expectations of commercial success, but I certainly knew we'd have a good time. There it is. We, uh, we made Whispering Jack, and which we didn't know was Whispering Jack at the time. David, do you recall any of the original ideas and concepts that were discussed in those early days of sort of planning this new solo project for John? Yeah, I do. Look, the recipe was discussed even, you know, before we actually programmed a note into any of the gadgets that I assembled at John's place. The idea was this. We go in there um, with the Fairlight, my entire rig, basically, which is almost like a portable studio. And um, 
we record very contemporary sounding backing tracks comprised of lots of big sort of gated reverb drum sounds and, and backward reverbs, all that sort of lovely 80s sort of stuff. A bit trashy, but a bit high tech too, and a, a mixture of slick and uh, raw, but uh, in the electronica. And uh, with the biting sounds of the, of the DX7s, because I had a, a rack of eight DX7s, and they had that nice biting quality, which sometimes we doubled with analog synths. That was the orchestration, if you like, with all the brass stabs. And then also we had brass samples. So we wanted to create a surreal sort of hyper-electroacoustic sound that was modern. And then once we created that bed for the, each song, and they found Brett Garsett, this amazing guitar player, and John wanted to juxtapose the sort of slickness and um, contemporary vibe of the keyboard slash sample drums with heavy guitar almost like a heavy metal guitarist and and that's what brett was essentially a metal guitarist and and i thought it was a cool idea to combine those two elements i think that's what really made and does make whispering jack a little bit unique in the pantheon of 80s pop is that combination of production values from synthesizers uh and but the guitar is an unexpected twist having kind of quite a heavy metal guitar sound to that was gave it an epic and strong quality that sort of in a way buoyed John up as a vocalist to really kind of roar and put a bit more edge to his voice. Yeah. He discovered sort of, he's a great yodeler, right? So he actually did a sort of a rock and roll version of yodeling in, in your The Voice, which I'd never heard him do before. And I just thought, wow, man, that's, that's really incredible. I think the attitude was, you know, we're just going to go for broke. You know, there's nothing to lose here. You know, I've been, you know, John was feeling and even said, I've, I've been told what to do all my life. And this now I'm going to make the record exactly the way I want to make it. And if it's people like it, great. If they don't like it, well, that'll be sad. But at least I, I can rest knowing I gave it my best and, and wanted to be the me that I wanted to be for a long time. Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. It's just so engrossing listening to you that it's. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's fabulous. Well, look, thanks, thanks for the opportunity. I love talking about this, and you know, I, I'm looking at. It, I've got my Whispering Jack 30 year anniversary record. This yeah. lovingly by John. I can't believe that the, there's more than 30 years have passed since those days. It's just astounding. Where did yeah. the time go? David, it feels like you've pretty much answered the question. What influenced the decision to make? Whispering Jack primarily an electronic album, which for the day was quite a bold move. Yeah, well, look, I think it was John and I having both been enveloped and captivated by LRB and then realised that in a way both he and I are sort of essentially in a cover band with LRB. We're singing the, someone else's hits. And uh, so I think uh, we wanted to... Both of us bust out of that. You know, I tried to inject a prog rock and sort of, you know, stuff that LRB wanted but the audience didn't want. And John, as a vocalist, you know, he discovered his rock edgy voice in LRB and wanted to sort of push that further than LRB could let him. So I think the decision to go progressively on Whispering Jack, to be bold, if you like, I like that word, was, you know, with a very electronic sound quite sophisticated juxtaposed with the rawness of the heavy metal guitar i think it was just something that it was an idea you know you have ideas that's what creativity is you just try stuff 
and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We had no idea that what we were doing was going to be, you know, in, on CDs in everyone's car and, and at home in Australia, practically. We had no idea we were making something that would be that populist. And I think that's the purity of intent in art, is when you're not focused on the outcome, you're focused on the process of creativity. And that's when the outcome is the best, when you're not even thinking about it. You have no desire to reach an audience or to, you know, of course you want people to like it. You, you want to reach an audience, but you're not focused on how many units you're going to sell uh, is it going to get played on all these record stations? You're just focused on creativity. And that's what I think is special about Whispering Jack. So reflecting now, 35 years has passed and or more as we're moving ahead. What did your work on Whispering Jack teach you about yourself? Um, I think it taught me about um, taking a risk with orchestration. You can try anything. And I think it taught me about it just reminded me of the fundamental truth I think I've always known, but sometimes forget, even now. And thinking about it now reminds me that the most fun you have in creativity is just going for it and with no expectations of success. Mm. That's, that's the gold standard in creativity, is not trying to micromanage the outcome or trying to shoot for an outcome. Yes, you can have wishes and dreams, but you've got to stay focused on, um, and this is what it, it was a big lesson in me is, and John's very humble man as well in terms of having no tickets on himself. He, he really is uh, so self-effacing and down to earth. He doesn't have a massive ego that's, you know, like, oh, I can do everything. He's, he realises he's human and he's, in, in, if anything, gives himself a hard time. Uh, or you know and 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 has very high expectations of himself but at the same time he watching him sing is just master clark in committing to the moment like that's what he does and that's what i learned from him was how to commit to a moment and to to really speak to an audience and to sing to an audience to really invite them into your headspace and uh, he, he is a master of doing that and that's probably the biggest lesson I learned from John is probably one of my greatest mentors in knowing how to communicate music to people. Yeah, well said, David. Um, are there other tracks of note that were rejected for Whispering Jack as well, David? Uh, we do know there, there's two famous songs that's come out. There's We Built This City that Starship ended up recording and yep. From a Distance, which uh, Cliff Richard and Bette Midler ended up doing. So that, that, uh, yeah, trying to yeah. imagine John doing those songs first is like, you know, quite a challenge for me personally. Uh, but um, were there any other songs that you know of that might have become hits for anyone else? No, that, I remember We Built This City. I was there when, when we listened to that. And I could hear that someone's going to make that a hit for sure. It's got an earworm all over it. And, um, you know, but John didn't like it. He just thought it was um, not him. And... Uh, you know, he was pretty, uh, once he's made up his mind, you can't, and this is good, this is the new John we loved, like, you can't talk him into anything anymore, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, and this horse did not want to drink <laughs> on that water, and um, and so we just let it go, and, um, you know, and then, of course, John, John said a few months later, fast forward to Jefferson Starship having a, a big hit with it, 
And he just said, I've got to live with it now. My son's singing that song because he's heard it on the radio so much. We built this city. (laughs) My son's singing it. Um, And uh, I could have sung it, but you know what? I'm still glad I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So that was some of our discussion with David Hirschfelder. And what a great day that was. Now I'd like to pick up with some of our discussion with Brett Garsett. And I begin by asking him how he actually came to be involved in the recording of Whispering Jack. I just uh, decided to start sending out some tapes. They were just demos of me playing some instrumentals that I bashed away on a drum kit and a bass. and Very raw, but just full of energy, that's for sure. And uh, there was a magazine called Sonics, and they'd do a yearbook, and they'd put a lot of uh, names and addresses and phone numbers of management companies, record companies. So I just sent out as many handwritten letters and tapes to as many as I could. And one of them happened to be the Wheatley organization. And uh, Glenn was one of about two people that responded. The letter said, uh, Dear Brad, I just got your tape. Please call me. So I thought, man, this has got to be good. No one writes a letter that short unless it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially they either, if they're saying they don't want you to call, then that's fair enough. But when they do want you to call, it's got to be good, right? So Yeah. So I called him up and, and just, I couldn't believe it, where he just said, look, John Farnham wants to go out and do a pub tour and he's putting a band together, sort of ad hoc, you know, do you want to come and audition for it? And I was like, oh, you got to believe it. So, uh, it so was that was the a, first time you met him? Yeah, that was uh, about October or November of 85. And uh, so the year before Whispering Jack. Yep. So I remember going down to John's house and um, yeah, he greeted me at the door and I was just kind of having to get over myself, you know, oh, g'day, John, you know, and had my girlfriend with me at the time. And, and back then, there were no little practice amps. Like, I had a Marshall 100-watt stack, you know, so you couldn't exactly throw that in the back of the car easily, and I wasn't going to drag that into John's house. So I had this cassette player that I would use as an amplifier, and uh, Jill Farnham still gives me grief over it. She still laughs her head off at this. She you walking in with your bloody cassette player. <laughs> your, girl, your girlfriend in tow it was just really funny, just the kids from the book, you know. Um, okay. You know? So, yeah, it was, it was just amazing. And then after that, they, they put a band together, which was me, Sam C., Nicky Nichols, Derek Polici, David Hirschfelder, and Bruno De Stanislaw. And uh, we went out and did some gigs. And, oh, it was just unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. It was just the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. Awesome. Yeah. Um, when discussing um, your time working on Whispering Jack Brett, you described yourself as sort of being the young, inexperienced new kid standing in the company of seasoned professionals. Oh, um, what advice could or would you like to share to anyone who finds themselves in a similar position in their life? You know, I was asked that question not long ago by a good friend of mine in the UK. And um, I mean, not to say that everybody else in the room was much older than me. I mean, Hershey was uh, he's only about three or four years older than me. And Sam's only a few years older than me. It was, but just they seemed so, they, they were more experienced. They're all seasoned professionals. And I had done nothing. And this friend of mine said, did you feel like these pro musicians are going to try and hold me down and push me around? And like I was standing there going, I'm in the presence of greatness here. You know, like these guys wrote the book. I'm still to this day trying to learn how to read. I mean, my vibe was I'm going to keep my mouth shut and my ears open and just try to get as much information as I can. Everything they said to me was invaluable nuggets of information. And it was. I learned so much from everything they said and did and played. Like I remember standing there watching Sam, you know, doing his guitar parts and he always had a part. Like the number one rule of being a great band member is come up with a part. 
and I even struggled for that with my pub band trying to write songs and and Sam just bang there it is done you know and I went my god you know just these guys are so good at what they do they just had it so together and yeah that was my take on it just keep your ears open and learn and give these people the absolute respect they deserve you know they have been <laughs> there done that and you have done nothing shut your mouth and get it together you know so that was it Brett you're credited as playing guitars in plural on every track of Whispering Jack um, guitars so electric guitar and what else it, it, it says guitars but I all I ever played was electric there's no acoustic on that album yeah and I do remember it was a challenge because the album was so well structured by the time I got there thanks to well John and Ross but David Hirschfelder and unfortunately, David wasn't there when I was recording, and I, I still don't know why. I really wish he'd been there. I would have loved his input. John and Ross were great. They were just uh, – and, and Doug Brady as well. Doug, uh, Doug was engineering, of course, and everyone was really helping me out, feeding me ideas and all that sort of stuff and just making me feel comfortable. I felt really relaxed considering I'd never been in a recording studio before. But uh, I, I really wish Hershey had been there because – what happened when we ended up playing a lot of those songs live was Hershey would say, well, hey, you can, do, you can do this keyboard part. I would actually mimic the keyboard part on the guitar. And then later on, when we replayed those songs with Stuart Fraser, Stuart came up with some amazing guitar parts. But he, you know, such a seasoned veteran and a genius of doing that. Stuart is one of the great geniuses I've ever worked with. You stick a guitar in that guy's hands and it becomes something else. You know, it's just an amazing palette of colours that I'd never heard before and in Stuart's hands. And, uh, you know, I remember when we did that and I just thought, oh, man, I wish that part had been on the album, you know. But, but I was just so young and inexperienced that uh, I wasn't conceptualising those things. So, I mean, what I tried to do was take a distorted guitar and use power chords to put that texture into those songs because it's the one thing that a synthesizer or a keyboard couldn't do convincingly. Nothing really sounded like a distorted electric guitar. And like I, I'm a big fan of a guy named Alan Holdsworth, and Alan used to do that in some of the early bands. He was in like a he was in a band called the Tony Williams Lifetime, and he was so creative at using power chords in a really creative way because back then he only had a Marshall as well. He was kind of like me. All he had was an amp that made a pretty heavy sound. So he would use that. So that's the, the kind of texture I tried to bring to all those songs. You know, I did what I could. And, uh, and just like I said, I was just given nothing but positive, nice. positive vibes from John and Ross. They were awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, look, it was always meant to be a textural thing. And I, I totally respected that and understood it. That's kind of what we were going for. I wasn't really trying to turn it into a guitar heavy album. I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't trying to, but I understood what they were trying to do. And it was a keyboard-dominated album and a good call because it's got a... Even though it's easy to look back at something like that now and say, yes, it sounds dated and 80s. It's, I don't think it sounds dated. I think it captures a time when someone was going for a sound like that and they did it just perfectly. Like, I mean, they nailed it, you know? Something sounds dated when it didn't quite work, but Whispering Jack yeah. didn't work. So. Yeah, and like you said, it's less the idea that um, it sounds dated because of the construction of the album, more than what an amazing uh, snapshot and something that was um, produced and it wasn't like um, other things were, that were being produced at the same time. Um, Not at all. And it's the, the, the boots and all commitment of going all in on that sound. Like, I mean, hmm. 
oh yeah, we'll put some real drums on some tracks and we'll, we'll do this and we'll maybe have a couple of songs that sound like this. No, that's the album, you know. Mm-hmm. Like that's the concept, that's the album, which is probably driven by Ross and David and John. That, that, that would be them, you know. They just say this is how we're doing it. Um, and we've talked about um, the strength of listening to the album in its entirety. Today with streaming, etc., it's so easy to be able to just isolate a song, listen to a song. Um, yeah. Whereas with, uh, Whispering Jack to me is a fantastic example of the value of listening to an album in its entirety. And with the, with the programming and the use of the Fairlight, it just creates threads throughout the entire album that are so consistent. And it lends to a listening experience for the entirety of the album that just brings the album to next level. And um, yeah, so as far as uh, you, these songs are fantastic songs, but in itself, the album itself as one product is just an, an amazing example. Uh, and, and quite often, particularly today, can be overlooked because there's no longer a need uh, to be able to, you know, put a put a needle down on a vinyl and listen to a full song. And, you know, well, yeah, that's that's good production and and mm-hmm. good. Uh, and look, I think I think John and David especially, and and Ross obviously. Ross was the producer, but David thinks like a producer. Like as a musician, he was always he always had that production element in mind, and that's that common thread right through it is Hershey's vision going right through that record and, uh, and, and Ross's vision too. Like, I mean, that's what I love about it is that, like I said, boots and all, this is what the, the album is going to sound like. And the songs are all going to obviously vary because they're different songs, mm. but yeah, there'll be that common thread right through it. And I think that's what makes a piece of work stand on its own. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you come from the older generation of, of buying vinyl, and yeah, there was a there was such a ritual to it where you place that needle on and you're in for the side at least, yep. if not the whole thing. So the journey of it. So that was Brett Garcid, and it was an amazing opportunity to speak to him. One hundred percent, mate. Like you know, once in a lifetime type of things. You yeah. know, like yeah, you can never preempt this type of thing. That's right. So um, certainly one of the things when looking at doing this podcast, and when we looked at the list of guests, one of the people on the top of my list was Glenn A. Baker. Of course. And um, Glenn is Australia's music historian. He's been crowned Rock Brain of the Universe three times. This man is a living legend when it comes to documenting um, not only Australian music history, but rock bands and influences the world over. How about we uh, take some time now, Adam, and listen to what Glenn had to say when we were talking to him about Whispering Jack. Let's do it. Either Ross or John said this, they had a wooden crate full of songs and they just listened and they listened and they listened to songs that needed to be on that album. My feeling is that they were out to get as great a diversity as they could, but at the same time stick to that new sound that they had actually created. So I think that they just threw one song after another and then grabbed one. So, yeah, the other songs on the album, I mean, Pressure Down and et cetera, were, were just extraordinary. So many albums in our lives, in all our lives, guys, we've heard one song that we wanted to hear and the rest hasn't lived up to it. But the thing is, even though Whispering Jack had an astonishing song on it, it had so many other astonishing songs on it. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, sort of like it really, it lived up to it. It deserved to be the biggest selling Australian album ever because it was a great album. It yeah, was a great, yeah. it totally. wasn't just one song. Every yeah. bloody song. Do you think it could have had more than four singles, Glenn, or do you think that they got that right? I think they actually did it right. I, yeah. Question mm-hmm. about okay. it. I remember when Michael Jackson died mm-hmm. and we were talking about Thriller, which is the biggest selling album in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Whispering Jack is the biggest selling album in Australia. Yeah. And I can remember saying, listen, Thriller, it was not a fluke. It was not a fluke. You know, so like... It, and Whispering Jack was not a fluke. The, this was a beautifully constructed album. It was a beautifully prepared album. It was just an astonishing... It deserves to be the biggest-selling Australian album. There is no question about it. And it's a, mm. just like Thriller deserved to sell what it had sold. I mean, Whispering Jack deserves absolutely to do what it did in Australia. It was the soundtrack of my life at that time. There was something about Whispering Jack that um, that really set it apart from everything else I was listening to. Look, I mean, I've had some experience. I go back to, I mentioned my, my own band, Old 55, our Take It Greasy album, which knocked Abba off number one. But that was the same thing. The whole album hung together so beautifully. It really hung together. And I think that that's what Whispering Jack did. It hung together so perfectly. There was no question about it. What do you think about the choice to make it primarily an electronic album as well, Glenn? Well, a bold and a brave choice. A very bold. And it's not what people were expecting for John Farnham. They were expecting sort of like melodies and they were expecting, you know, good pop songs and they were expecting a whole range of things not an electronic album. So, yes, maybe Ross Fraser had a lot to do with it. I mean, I think that um, maybe the Fairlight had a lot to do with it. Maybe, mm. maybe you know, sort of like oh, there's a whole reason. But it was a very, very good idea. And it took the audience with it. That's what's really, really important. An audience which at that time wasn't used to really electronic albums, particularly from a beloved local hero, someone that they'd actually grown up with. I mean, they simply weren't expecting that. But it took the audience with it. Maybe it was electronic light, (laughs) you might say. And it it was okay. Everybody was quite prepared um, to have it as part of what they were listening to. They were quite prepared to be part of their musical palette. And it took them into new directions and new adventures and it took them largely because of you're the voice i mean like i said that could take them anywhere Mm. it was so incredibly vital and important we spoke about the fact that whispering jack spent 25 weeks on top of australian charts at the number one position i just want to just for people that are listening that may not be familiar around the time that whispering jack was actually released um other albums that were actually out there for consumption were things like Sting, Dream of the Blue Turtles. It spent three (laughs) weeks on top of the charts for us. Uh, Whitney Houston's debut album spent 11 weeks on top of the charts. Madonna, True Blue, two weeks. Uh, Cindy Lauper, True Colours, four weeks. 
Paul Simon's Graceland was a huge album. It spent five weeks on top of the charts. Diesel and Dust by Midnight Oil, six weeks. And Man of Colours for Ice House came in at 11 weeks. So when we look at these albums that are fantastic pieces of work that internationally they did really well, Whispering Jack stands tall above any of those. And it to me, it's just incredible. Not only can you look at this album and say that it's amazing, I think some of it is bringing perspective as to what it was competing with at the time. And all of those records, for all the success they had here in Australia, none of them stood a chance when compared to the success that Whispering Jack was having. Nigel, you should be sitting in my chair and you should be <laughs> saying this because I could not put it better myself yeah it was a climate of some really fine fine albums and it's quite extraordinary we've actually got a bit of a surprise now for our listeners and that is um you know the fairlight seemed to play such an instrumental part in the creation of the album so we managed to track down one of the co-creators to the fairlight Uh, Mr. Peter Vogel, and we had the opportunity to talk to him about the creation of The Fairlight. For anyone who's unfamiliar with the story of The Fairlight or perhaps not grasping the scope of what you had developed at the time, how would you best describe The Fairlight itself and what its function was? Uh, Well, in terms of technology, it was a very large and complicated machine because at that time, microprocessors operated at one megahertz which is uh, like a typical, a, a cheap mobile phone these days might operate at a gigahertz, uh-huh. which is a thousand times faster mm-hmm. than the microprocessor we were using in those days. The amount of memory that we could connect uh, to this microprocessor was 64 kilobytes. <laughs> and uh, so a kilobyte, multiply that by a thousand to get to a megabyte, multiply yeah. that by a thousand to get to a gigabyte. So. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine we're working with tiny, tiny amounts of memory that would be uh, inconceivable these days to do anything with. And the cost of all these components was astronomical. So we didn't actually appreciate how expensive this thing was going to be until we started building them. And we initially estimated that it was going to be a very expensive machine and we thought it was going to sell for about $20,000. And that's until we realised there was more than $20,000 worth of parts in it. So the price quickly kept going up and up and up, but it never went up sufficiently for us to make a profit, unfortunately. And that was eventually our undoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Peter, um, you became the salesman and the spokesperson taking the CMI International. Um, And in the UK, your connection there with Peter Gabriel and in the US, Stevie Wonder. So interested if you could just share some stories about your actual time, whether it's meeting them or what you've got as far as your memories of those particular artists. Yeah, well, having uh, spent my whole youth building electronic stuff, uh, I had actually no idea at all about pop music or pop culture or anything if i ever watched tv it was from the back not from the screen side and i didn't have the time or interest to sit down and listen to records so i had no idea who any of these people were and um, i was asked could i deliver the first cmi to america it was going to an artist called stevie wonder Uh, i had never heard the name before 
and just thought it sounded like a bit of a wanky name. <laughs> but uh, he obviously had enough money somehow to, to buy one of these things, so why not? We only had one instrument at the time, and it was very delicate. So I thought I'd better accompany it personally and took it there and set it up in his studio. And uh, I was a bit worried at first that um, seemed a bit problematic that we developed the first instrument with a graphical user interface where you could actually see waveforms on the screen. And this was before the, the mouse was invented. It had mm -hmm. a thing called a light pen, which you used to actually draw waveforms on the screen and point and click and that sort of thing. And um, it was a bit ironic that our first major customer was blind, but he had absolutely no trouble using it because of course he was just accustomed to that's the way you learn things you learn where to point on the screen and um, he took to it like a duck to water and, and loved it from the first sounds that he heard and uh, he asked me whether he could take it on a tour with him at that time he was doing an album called the secret life of plants and he was off to um, the uk sometime later and i said i'd meet him there and I then just by word of mouth you know, from there, it was just one artist to the next on the phone saying, you're not going to believe what I got in my studio here. Listen to this. And they'd hold the phone up to it and play some notes. And then it would be back on the plane off to some other studio. So the next stop was um, England and off to Peter Gabriel's studio in Bath. And I s stayed with him for about a week sort of showing him how it works and uh, Peter was a, a, a lovely guy and uh, also got very excited about the instrument straight away and had a million ideas of what to do with it and he said oh Kate would love this do you mind if I invite Kate over so Kate who <laughs> 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 um, so then one introduction led to another and and uh, that's how we ended up sort of on every 80s artist's recordings. Yeah. Has, has the significance of who you've actually met and who actually, like, you know, took this on board uh, grown for you over the years as well, Peter? Uh, well, only recently. I mean, my children have always been singularly unimpressed until uh, suddenly my teenage daughter came running in saying, Dad, Dad, did you know Kate Bush had used the Fairlight? <laughs> And I said, yeah, I do know a bit about that yeah. uh, because it had turned up on TikTok finally. So, yeah. And so now I've got cred. <laughs> yeah, t TikTok's once you've made it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, the 80s saw various overseas artists embrace the Fairlight CMI. Um, how was it being received here in Australia? Uh, well, here in Australia, there weren't many artists who could afford it. So the market was pretty small. Uh, but those who did use it, uh, used it really well and were very excited by it. And there were mm. you know, several notable albums resulting, I'm told. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we know of one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nige, uh, Whispering Jack's obviously had more than a couple of releases. Uh, it's uh, the one album from John's catalogue that uh, they found uh, any excuse to re-release over the years, of course. And yeah. um, I think I've got maybe five, maybe six copies of it. 
Tell the listeners quickly how many copies of Whispering Jack you actually own. Um, well, for me, my total sits at 18 at the moment. There's something about them that's different for each one of them. So. Something about them that's unique, that's right. And mainly yeah. as well because of the amount of international releases and stuff like that. Exactly. A lot of them are international releases. Um, they vary. Uh, the, isn't the track listing is one of the main things as well from the American release? Yep. The American yeah. and Canadian releases um, have reordered the track listing and which... I don't really mm, understand not for the why. Yeah, I don't know yeah. why they would do that. But they also remixed three of the tracks for the album on the American uh, yes. release. That was You're the Voice, Pressure Down, and A Touch of Paradise. Correct. So, yeah. 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 So that's what's different about uh, the American yeah. version. Okay. So we've obviously got the original release from 1986. I think it was actually the first CD that came out in Australia as well, wasn't that's, it? Nice? So, yep, that's correct. Yep. Okay. And then, so there's that one. And then there was a strange release. It was a limited edition that came out in uh, 1990 around the Chain Reaction era as well, which added yeah. two songs, Dream People and uh, Amazing Grace live. Dream People is a great song, um, but it was actually recorded during the Chain Reaction sessions. Um, so... Yeah, it's very, very, very much um, withdrawn from Whispering Jack, if it's, you ask me. It's so disconnected. and Very much so. We've talked about Whispering Jack as an entire product and listening to an album in its entirety and Whispering Jack being a real electronic album. There is such a different feel to that album and that comes through in that recording of Dream People. Um, so to have that tagged on to the Whispering Jack album, it's just a real contrast of sound. And it doesn't... Dream People as an isolated track does not necessarily support um, Whispering Jack and what that album's about. It's quite jarring to have it on the actual album, Whispering Jack. It really just feels like a, a real afterthought, this release. In fact, I don't really know what they were thinking. If, no. if I'm honest, Nige, you know. True. Um, yeah, yeah. But what we did, what we did have the um, the good fortune of doing is actually having quite a bit of a discussion with the two songwriters of Dream People, uh, Frank Housen and John Capek. Um, and it was very interesting. It, it was quite a challenging time to be able to talk to both of those uh, gentlemen. Um, John Capek yeah. was actually in Nashville, so it was great to be able to in the middle in. of a, a, probably a family lunch, by the sound of things, as well. <laughs> <no age. laughs> Unfortunately, we had to cut things short with John. And um, for those that don't know, um, John Capek, his most successful um, song that he wrote was actually Rhythm of My Heart for Rod Stewart, and he's had a string of hits with very high-profile artists from all over the world uh he really <laughs> wondered why we actually were uh wanting to talk to him about that um so i found that most amusing in, in, yeah, in the too. lead up to that so also with frank um we had the opportunity to talk to him and um i think it was more the technical issues there that uh provided a few challenges for us as they have with a couple of our interviews um so, uh, but we did get a bit of an insight into what Dream People was all about and the inspiration behind it. Yeah, and I found the conversation actually quite interesting. So um, let's listen to the composite, uh, both John and Frank, um, talking about uh, Dream People. Hi everyone, this is John K. Beck, a co-writer of Dream People, and you're listening to He's the Voice podcast. Put down your weapons and go. You're one of the dream 
Thank you very much, John. That's Beautiful. Great. Thanks, John. And I assume that you probably haven't spoken about this song for a very, very long time. I don't think I've ever if... spoken about it other than having uh, written it yeah. with Frank. Yeah. My, my writing process is actually uh, kind of similar to Elton John and Bernie Taupin, where I generally don't get together with the person I'm writing with. So uh, if my memory serves me correctly, um, this is a lyric that Frank gave me. And I didn't participate in the lyric. He didn't participate in the music. Uh, they were created kind of at separate times. Sure. So, John, did you write the music for Dream People? Yes, that's my main melody and harmony and chords and music oh. is the main thing. Yeah, fantastic. Actually, we were just talking about that before you came in, which is the only thing we know of Dream People is John Farmer's recording of it. Is that in line with what you envisioned or as they have done in many of the songs that they've recorded, they've sort of taken it and made it their own? I have a really good memory of it yeah. and uh, I, I have to say I really, really love uh, Farnham's version of it, which is not that dissimilar from the demo. I've always been fascinated with uh, Celtic music and dream people has a very very deep celtic vibe and um, i was born in prague in the czech republic and uh, i read somewhere that the uh, first archaeological find of a digging of uh, ancient civilizations of bagpipes was found in bohemia of all places wow i attribute that to the celtic tribes who are marauding their way across europe towards uh, england where they an island where they ended up yep. pillaging and raping as uh, along the way as they did and perhaps some ancestry in my background you know, is some celtic bagpipe guy you know uh, doing that. I, I i really don't know but i've always loved that music what strikes adam and i as people that have listened to this song it's our view that the opening of that song actually starts with like a didgeridoo and mm -hmm. as the listener it sort of takes you on a track and, and then to have the interpretation of the lyrics. It's ironic that you say about the Celtic influence because it strikes us that it's actually very much about a, a dream time mm -hmm. and Indigenous type of influence. influence coming through to us as the listener and I'm just wondering, is that something that you have realised or, or taken from the song as it's presented? Yeah, that's an interesting take. It's not something that I you know, was aware of, but it's a great interpretation because there's a commonality in, in technical terms between uh, a didgeridoo-based uh, uh, music and Celtic music because they all rely on drones. So when you have a bagpipe, it has a bass note that sort of continues that's not that dissimilar from, uh, from a didgeridoo. So you have this drone. And uh, similarly, uh, you know, if you listen to U2, they have uh, an upper drone um, with the, the edge, uh, the, the things that he plays, which are these consistent yep. arpeggios that go on forever. Yeah. Um, so the bottom drone is the didgeridoo or... Um, <laughs> But Trevor, <laughs> your, your whistling is being recorded. I, I think some, someone's whistling dream people in the background. 
Um, John, do you know if Dream People has been recorded by any other artists or if there's any other version in existence? Uh, not that I know, just the Farnham version. Right, yeah. Okay. John, can you recall the initial impressions that you had when you heard John's final recording of the song? Can you it remember what you thought? Incredible disappointment that it wasn't a huge hit. Mm. Yeah. It just sounded really powerful to me. And I thought he sang it. Yeah, I think he did a fabulous job. And I thought it deserved more mileage than it got. Yeah. Uh, G'day, Frank. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing very well. G'day, hey, Frank. How are you? Good, good thanks. It's nice to meet you, Frank. I bet this has been quite some time since you've said, well, you know, had any discussion at all about dream people. I know, I know. Interesting story, the whole, uh, how it came about. Uh, Frank, can I ask you um, how the idea of the song Dream People, and I know that it was a long time ago and that we're asking yeah. specifically about that song, but do you... No, have... you, you are blessed or cursed to be talking to a man who remembers everything that ever happened to him, which is probably <laughs> why, why I suffer from this trauma and my voice is crackling because I sometimes feel that I'm 500 years old. <laughs> anyway, um, now, I remember everything, and uh, it's been a curse and a blessing. But um, I, uh, of course, my grandmother was Irish. I wrote it about Ireland, you know, about, you know, on the green fields of Ireland, the place I call my home. And then, anyway, Farnham records it, which I didn't know about until he'd actually recorded it. And then I listened to it, and he says, oh, I'm going to be of our land or something. So he changed it so it's about the indigenous people of Australia, which is fine by me, because the Irish are, you know, this sort of dream people. And, uh, you know, they're uh, very romantic, they're uh, great storytellers. They're very sentimental. You know, the Irish are a weird lot, and but I love them. So I was kind of writing about, you know, my ancestry, but it doesn't really matter. No. And so John's producers changed it to be about the Australian Indigenous people. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes, do and all of that. And terrific. Yeah, very okay. Terrific. That's really interesting. Um, can you discuss anything of the actual writing process at all with us, Frank? Like, you know, inspirations? You know, uh, it depends who I'm writing with. I've written with a lot of people over the years. Uh, you know, I've written both ways where, uh, uh, you know, somebody gives you a piece of music and then you write the lyrics to it. But mostly it's been that you know, I write the lyric and then the composer puts the music to it. Mm -hmm. And I've been told by a lot of collaborators that they find my lyrics very easy set music to and that they immediately get melody ideas and that's probably because i've been in the business since i was seven so i do tend to i've heard so many songs in my life and i've performed so many songs that i guess i have a natural meter for song lyrics you know so the idea is usually gestate in my mind for some time and then we kind of click in a place that i get the urge to sit down and put on paper right okay yeah uh, but it's magic and you know you can't explain magic can you 
Nope. <laughs> um, Frank, can I ask you, um, did you keep any original drafts of your work on Dream People? Uh, I probably have. I have heaps of notebooks. Um, it didn't show no. much. Okay, that's you know, good. has the ability to, you know, take what you have and basically uh, come up with fabulous melody. A lot of the composers, you know, they might... They already have a melody or a hook in their head and then you've got to adapt. The tape echoes with what you've done, you know, and uh, we just had a, a very, very good association. And then, of course, in 1996, so around the Romeo's Heart era, they decided to do the 10th anniversary edition of Whispering Jack. However, nothing really to write home about with this one, right? It's a bluish, silvery colour as far as the presentation of it. But uh, same track listing, um, yeah. nothing different there. Okay, so then we move through time to the 20th anniversary, which was 2006. And this is a much more significant release. This was uh, them actually putting in some effort um, as well. Although <laughs> This was a release worth purchasing is ultimately what I'm yeah. saying. And the reason for that, uh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the main ones is that the album sound was remastered for the first time. Uh, the old CDs sound quite flat in comparison. So they obviously pumped up the bass and the, and the sequencing. And uh, they also added the bonus track, Pressure Down, the extended version from the single. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, they decided that they were going to do a little bit more, you know, value for the fans. And they decided to add Whispering Jack live in concert from 1987 at the Melbourne Sports and Entertainment Centre. Yeah. However, Nige, bit of a boat of contention with fans, this one, as good as it is to have this concert on DVD. Uh, yeah, very much so. I'm a big fan of the VHS release, yep. actually. And um, to the best of our knowledge, it's uncut compared yeah. to the actual live performance. But yep. um, when it was released on TV in 1987 for the broadcast, um, the songs Infatuation, Comic Conversation, All in Love is Fair and Trouble and, and Down, Down the on the Border were all taken out of the broadcast. For unknown reasons as well. Um, for then mm. the 2006 DVD release, um, again, so Paper Paradise, Infatuation, Comic Conversation, All in Love is Fair and Trouble and Down on the Border were all removed for that DVD release. There's a couple of LRB songs there and a yeah, couple of true. older songs, yeah. but Trouble is the strangest one because it's from Whispering Jack. That's so, right. you know, like that is the strange one for sure. And for me, that's problematic. I It's bad, This yeah. was a 20th anniversary celebrating the album. It's a DVD of the concert yep. um, and the performances Yep. And I don't understand why they've removed Trouble, which is a track off the album. Yet, as much as I like the performances, they've included things like When the War Is Over and... Amazing uh, Grace. Yeah, Amazing yeah. Grace is in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Playing to Win, which is a fantastic song, as is one. Even Help, they're not part of the Whispering Jack album, whereas Trouble was. So the yep. fact that those, those songs were included on the DVD... Uh, yet they omitted one of the tracks that is a Whispering Jack track, just astounds me. Yeah, it's the most disappointing thing about the DVD. I mean, we've got the VHS, we've seen the full concert, we know that it's disappointing for whatever reason, like whether it was licensing or other creative decisions that removed those songs. Trouble is the strange one because it's from the album Whispering Jack, no doubt yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. So. And then, Nigel, if we move across to the 30th anniversary, what was dubbed the complete Whispering Jack. Now, yeah, 
<laughs> if it was actually complete and full of brand new material, there'd be some, you know, warrant behind that the use of that name. But this Nigel, I've got to say, as the final version in 2016 for the 30th anniversary of the album, is the most disappointing re-release of Whispering Jack, even though at the time it was pushed as being something very special in this whole vinyl, uh, you know, revolution as yep. well. Yep. Um, and, and the vinyl itself that's in there was a selling point along with the book that they included, which had some rare photographs mm -hmm. and information in there. Yep. But the CD and DVD uh, included in that same box is a direct rehash from the 20th anniversary. Yeah, so I take away as somebody who was really interested and looking forward to the 30th release and, you know, that I would be investing my money into that. Um, I look at it and say over that 10-year time frame, nobody addressed those issues with that, that DVD release, which was still a disappointment to me. Yeah, definitely. So, so this one uh, is the you know the most recent one. Uh, yeah. It's the biggest, being the size of a vinyl, and it's a box, and it looks very special. Uh, look, if somebody didn't have a copy of Whispering Jack previously, it'd probably be one of the ways to go. You know yeah. what I mean? Because yep. it's pretty special. It, you know, it looks impressive. Uh, but in regards to its content, it is actually a, a supreme letdown, particularly after the pretty decent work they did on the twentieth anniversary one. And given so, given yeah. the fact that it celebrates Whispering Jack which for us is a good thing. Yes. Um, the one thing that I take away from that uh, release is actually the book. The booklet was the thing that I and actually appreciated out yeah. of that whole um, uh, set. set. Yeah. Yeah. And this thing retailed for $130. Yeah. Yeah. So an hundred and thirty dollar book for you there, Nige. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, so yeah. I, I, my but, view is for that it just wasn't value for money. As somebody who is yeah. a collector and of these things are of interest to me, it really wasn't value for money. I held off for a couple of years buying it actually, and it wasn't until we started working on this podcast that I actually then decided to go and buy it. Yeah. So you know. Well, Nige, that pretty much brings our discussion on the album Whispering Jack to a close. We've got lots more of exciting content upcoming in the uh, the coming weeks and months. Oh, we sure but do. Yep. We absolutely do. But the exciting news uh, with our launch as well, Nige, is that the socials are live for the He's the Voice podcast. So are. where can you find us? Okay, well, all the usual suspects, I suppose. So let's start with good old Facebook. You can obviously find us at the He's the Voice podcast, facebook.com backslash htv podcast uh good old twitter.com backslash htv podcast instagram.com backslash htv podcast and good old youtube as well where you can find a version of the show also at htv podcast but again it, to make it easy for everybody you can find us by looking for the name he's the voice you can you know easily find us there on the uh the good old interwebs so nice and simple knowledge yeah Good stuff. Yeah. So um, we hope that uh, people enjoy what we're doing and um, they can connect to us through uh, those avenues. And up next, we've got the, uh, the very first track from Whispering Jack. Yeah, we're going to go into quite the deep dive per song, so it should be fun. Okay, cool. No worries. Thanks very much, Adam. It's been good. It's been wonderful, mate. Always is. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much, listeners. Take care. All right. See ya. See you around. He's the voice, guys.